Welcome to Inkwell, a podcast from Houston, Texas, for anyone engaged in the world of reading and writing. Inkwell is brought to you by Tintero Projects, which showcases the work of national and international Latinx and Latin American writers through readings and workshops, and Inprint, a literary arts nonprofit which, since 1983, conducts readings, workshops, and other programs to promote creative writing and reading and supports writers. Inkwell hosts Jasmine and Lupe Mendez, writers, educators, activists, and founders of Tintero Projects, will interview emerging and established writers from across the United States with energy, wit, and fresh perspective on what it means to ink well in this day and age. And welcome to another edition of Inkwell. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Lupe Mendez, and to my right, because last time I got it wrong because I said left, but uh, to my right is... Uh, the one and only Jasmine Mendez, co-host. Yes, co-host. And uh, this is our second podcast. So hopefully those of you that have been listening to the first podcast repeatedly because there was only one. Huh? And it was awesome. And it was awesome. It was it's great. still awesome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we are uh, in the lovely mansion that is the imprint house here. Also in, known as a two-story cottage in Montrose. Uh, it's a mansion that's like four stories with a pool, two butlers. And, There's a fireplace in here. And a fire there house. is a fireplace, a fireplace upstairs. Place. That is yeah. pretty nifty. And uh, the other voice that you hear is our guest, whose name we won't mention just yet, but guests say hi. Real quick. Hey. And uh, that's all you're going to hear from the guests for like the next couple of minutes. Yeah. Um, so we're going to kick it off uh, <laughs> with what I'm going to start titling our new segment of like, what's going on in La Casa Mendez this week? Or Jasmine yelling at me all the time. Well, that's what family is for, which is what we're going to talk about today, right? You're as, looking at me. As you are. <laughs> telling you. Oh, so, okay. Things about things about family. So, uh, welcome back. Uh, yes, we're going to jump right in. Uh, this particular podcast, we are going to be interviewing uh, Daniel Pena, uh, talking about his brand new release, uh, his book, Bang, uh, which is a phenomenal novel. Um, Thank you. That sounds like I should, that should be a tongue Twister? Phenomenal novel. Phenomenal novel. Say that five times fast. Oh, that's, that's, I'm really touched. <laughs> I'm really touched if you say it once. You know? That's, that's <laughs> done. One time. Um, yeah. but so, okay, yeah. So the beginning conversations about family and, and what that looks like. So And over the years, Lupe and I have found that we're, we approach family very differently. Approach. Um, well, <laughs> okay, guys- so, okay, so first of all, first of all, you're an only child, which is like, Bizarro in a Latino family, anyway, and I'm, I know it's a stereotype, but Thanks. it is. I feel so much so, no, better. So no, so we always go myself. like we always have arguments, which like siblinghood, I guess, is also a thing um, that comes up in Bang um, a lot, obviously. And Lupe doesn't understand that like how I am with my siblings because like we get into fights like we did as kids, and then we get over it and we move on, and it's like whatever, just it is what it is. And he's like, I wouldn't talk to her, your sister again if she did that, or what, what do you mean, or how you no, and your brother and this, and I'm just like, dude. They're my siblings. They're my blood. They're my family. You just get over it. They yeah. do dumb stuff. I do dumb stuff. And we move on. And so he's just like, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's like, so, going to fall on the sword on like this. This was a like, moment in which like so, this was film and I could like point and like an asterisk would show up either above my head or Jasmine's head. This would be one of those moments. So I don't actually <laughs> tell Jasmine like I would talk to blah, blah. I just sit there with my mouth wide open and I'm like, what is happening? He doesn't get how siblings work. I don't understand. Like I am, I have always been, and I think I probably will continue to be in awe. Siblings are like, like just bad parents. Like they're just like, like, (laughs) or like annoying friends. Like you can't get shake them. Like you want to, but like, you're just like, Like, "Ah, I can't ghost on this person. (laughs) Yeah, you can't. I'm constantly in awe of how siblings work. And like, but, and this is, well, this is the kind of like, like this like really sad oh, moment, there, yeah. Debbie Downer kind of moment thing of 
consistently because being an only child and those that are listening, if you're an only child, like maybe this has run through your head, the, the constant reminder that you will probably be the only wielder holder of like a family memory because there's nobody else to help you remember an experience. Whereas someone with siblings has that like shared history, shared history, that shared perspective, like this big, you remember when dad fell down the stairs and, yeah. Everybody remember maybe something slightly different about those yeah. events. And you can actually like, hey, when we did X, Y, and Z, what do you remember? And memory's fallible. Like, and, like, yeah, I was going to say, everybody, fallible. everybody's memory is like different, you know, like, or what they, how they remember the event is also like different. Like their truth is not the same as yours. Or like, even with siblings, like something that I've learned is like, we were, we all lived in the same household, but we were raised differently. And people don't get that. They're like, how'd you guys turn out so different or what happened? And I'm like, because my parents saw that we each had different personalities and different youngest? needs. I'm the middle child. Oh, oh I'm the middle child. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's a special uh, thing. I'm just going to leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so it's like, you realize that there's certain things that they did with me. Also, A, because I'm, I'm in a Latina, like I'm in a Latino household and I'm the oldest female. Yeah. Like they had certain expectations of me that they didn't have my brother, that they didn't have my sister because she was the baby. And so there's just like this, this different family dynamic like that happens. And I was going somewhere with that comment, but no, that's my, my sister. <laughs> my sister talk. I talk with my sister about that all the yeah. time. She's the youngest in the family. Uh, you know, and she's talking about like, man, the pressure that's put on Latina women, mm-hmm. especially when you're the youngest, it's like, it's, it, there's, it's a unique sort of position in any family, but also when you're like the peanut, like the littlest child mm-hmm. in the family mm-hmm. and you also happen to be Latina. There's like all this, cause it's like, in my family, it was, it was like the Catholic thing. And then it yeah. was like the sort of, uh, you know, the gender norm thing. And then mm-hmm. it's like, we got away with so much. My little sister, like, not so much. Didn't you know? yeah. at all. I never got away with anything. And like, it was like, it was very much like, you can't go out. You can't do this. You can't date. If you go take your brother and yeah. or take your sister. And I'm like, what is my like four-year-old yeah. sister going to help me do? I don't understand. What is, what is the point? Yeah. Um, I'm saying in, in those dynamics too, like, interestingly, like when I hear those stories from other folks about like what it was like growing up, I think being the only one in the house, I never did nothing. Like, yeah. you're not going anywhere. What if you go missing? What do we do? <laughs> if someone well, I feel like that's what I'm going to be with my child. I'm going to be like, uh, you took a long time to make and yeah. you're not going nowhere <laughs> like, because you're the only one. Yeah. And, and so like, there's you. always, yeah. it's like I always notice like what, you know, the, the differences in, in how different individuals are raised in a multiple child family. But like the pressure that sometimes an only child gets is yeah. like, Unique because like did you feel like there was a lot of pressure on you to be like you gotta be successful or something? Well, no, it was always this constant. Like I was the three things that I always remember hearing from my parents were like, "Mijito de mi vida." (laughs) <laughs> Which is like a heavy a thing it's to wear. A heavy, yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. and then like my dad would be like, "Tú eres el, el, tus, tus amigos, they have uh, younger parents." Y pues, nos vamos a morir primero. <laughs> And yeah, I'm like, like it's just you're like gonna Catholic, die first before my friends. That's sort of existential Catholic. It sort of is, like, right? It's just like what? Yeah. And so, like, I had to very much early on learn how to do lots of different things because of this idea that I'll probably be on my own quicker than maybe somebody else. And that's another yeah. thing that, that we varied on too that we talk a lot about is like how your parents were so forthright about a lot of things and just yeah. were very straightforward and like kept it real, like. Yeah. You got, you got to help us pay the bills. We don't have money. We're going to die first. Whereas my parents were super protective of us. And like, they were always like, 
eso, like, eso no so, eso no es para ti. Like, that's like adult conversation. Don't worry about it. Or like when like a family member would die or somebody was sick. And like, if you were under the age of like 17, you were like, go, they would like, go play, go play, get <laughs> out. Like, nada. Yeah, no es nada, no te preocupes. Like, it's not about you. Son cosas de adultos. That's like, I always heard that my whole life growing up. Even if you wanted to know, you'd be like, well, ¿qué pasa? Or da, da, da. And they're like, no, yeah, no, 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 no. The way no, you, you know how you get past that is that you're familiar with pena ajena. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where you just like, you just have like, you just, uh, it's like the one in where you just have like pena ajena, where it's like, you're essentially, it's like, it's kind of, how do you explain it? It's like linked to Schadenfreude, but it's not, it's like, it's it's like I'm angry on someone else's behalf yeah. or I'm upset on someone else's behalf. And then your tia's like, yeah, she's on my side. And then you get into the adult conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's and then the you're, like, and you're like, yeah, and, I'm, and you're oh, in it. See, so, see yeah. the only way I got away with it is if I could, if I acted like I wanted to help clean the kitchen. Uh-huh. And so I could like overhear all the conversations because I'm like, oh, see, well, limpiar la mesa. But it was just because I wanted to hear the cheese man. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, cleaning, oh, helping my dude, mom. Yeah. Did it. And that's then I know what okay. was going on. Do you guys on. have a word for cheese man in your house? In our house is goat. Just goat. Because my, my grandmother couldn't say gossip, so she's like, Oh, that's oh the, cute. Yeah, el goat. <laughs> I mean, she's so, like, what's the goat? The funny part was in my house, it was always like, my mom was like, Muchacho, ven acá, que hay esta cosa que decir. And I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, these are all the bills for the house, uh, so you're not going to be able to have X, Y, and Z. <laughs> she like breaks it down for And you. like my parents would be like, these are all the things. So She opens up the Excel spreadsheet. Ours just said no hay dinero para eso. Like I grew up my whole life, there's no money for that. We don't have money for that. We don't have, like yeah. I don't know what the amount of money was that we did have. I just always knew there wasn't you know any money enough? for anything yeah. that I, I wanted. I distinctly remember as a kid, <laughs> my dad yeah. would be like, aquí hay 20 dólares. Be, be a la tienda y paga este bill. And I'm like, you want me to get on my bike, take this money, and go pay the light bill, and then bring you back the change? It's like, well, pussy. Okay, cool. And <laughs> <laughs> like that'd be it. Like you'd go and do it and come back, and then like I would talk to friends at school, and I was like, would you do this week? And I was like, pay well, the light I drove, bill. I got to pay bills. <laughs> pay bills. And like, ten years then, old. Like friends are like, you what? And I was like, pay the light yeah, bill. Don't yeah, don't your parents like give you money to I go know, pay some? Very like, I don't even know where to pay bills. I was like, grocery store, dude. Grocery store. <laughs> yeah. like, what do you go to the mart, man? Yeah. Like, what do you Is do? It, you get, do they make you do everything there where you get like the what do you, you can do everything uh, like a Kroger or something? Oh, where it's yeah. Like, like, like well, Fiesta, yo. Oh, the Fiesta. Keys, keys made, you pay the light bill. Ticketmaster, like the whole thing. Money gram. Or you get to the thing on your car, like where you have to do like the auto inspection stuff. Oh, yeah, like, you, you can do, do all some stuff. of that. Yeah. You can do all that back in the day too. Yeah. So like all those things, but I think like in terms of family, and I, I think I want to say a part of it too is also generational. Like yeah. my mother was born in 34. My father was born in 44. Between the two of them, they've seen like the end of the depression, World oh, War II, wow, yeah. like the Bracero movement, like all these different pieces, the beginning of, of uh, either both the, 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 Civil rights movement, but then like women's liberation, like all of these wow. things. Do they talk to you about that stuff? None of it. They yeah. never mentioned <laughs> any of it. But like, yeah, that's my, my same with my parents. <laughs> and, really? it's, and it was always like, I was like, Mom, what were you doing when like JFK got shot? Trabajando. And I'm like, uh, what were you doing we when MLK got shot? Trabajando. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you, what, you know, like, Cesar Chavez, trabajando. And I'm yeah. like, what? And like, one time I like busted out, I was like, Mom, like, what, you know, what part did you play in the civil rights struggle? And like, I got you started guilt tripping. Well, I, like, I got schooled like <laughs> real quick. And she was like, Mijo, don't you know, I grew up in, I graduated high school in 55, left the Rio Grande Valley, moved to Victoria and then later to Galveston by the time it was 1958. I was the civil rights struggle. Oh, I, am a, I, I mean, was a single yeah. Mexicana, South Texas woman living on their own yeah. miles away from home, yeah. uh, becoming a nurse in an age where there were not a lot of Mexican-American nurses <laughs> in in the field. And yeah. I like sat down and I was like, 
I guess I'll go pay the light bill. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go pay the light bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, that level yeah. of like, you know, what, what is family dynamic? So like emergencies, even in the house, like yeah. never felt like all the stories that I always got from family was like, oh, well, this happened and tu tia Berta murió. And like, yeah. it just was, was like. This is so much more drama. <laughs> I was not. That was a Dominican thing or what, but it was very just like, and not necessarily like drama, but just, I mean, there was just a lot more. Like, so, I mean, you've seen it. Like, when I'm sick in the hospital or when someone is sick in the hospital, like, everyone, eh. las tías, las primas, like, everyone shows up. And I'm like, I swear it was just the flu. Like, I'm good. <laughs> like, but they yeah. really just got to be there. Oh, man. Well, okay, yeah. so, I mean, it's great to have that family support, but it also can be overwhelming, right? Like, yeah. if you're not used to it. It's a lot of Vicks. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of Vicks, <laughs> so man. We were yeah. just talking we had, about that today. Yeah. We had just gotten married, and she got real sick and ended up in the hospital. And we talked to her folks, and I swear, I we had only been married at this point. Two months, maybe a oh, month. Oh yeah, it's still in the it's still magical, still yeah. magical. Yeah. And then like her yeah. whole family like caravans down to my house, and it was very much like a cultural like oh my what's qué qué pasa qué pasa and like literally like they all show up at the house and I'm like no te puedo servir like I can't serve you yeah. I can't like you know be on hand and foot to make sure that you're okay and they're like no le has and they're like they fixing just, stuff like, in my house. house they took they over like the house they like took over the kitchen oh, they cooked they like, cleaned they rearranged I, furniture it's like and my parents were ever listening to this I'm really really sorry like <laughs> they they, my, if I had told my parents that I had people up in the house and that they were using the kitchen and like I didn't serve them and didn't make a bed for them and nothing yeah. like my mother was she's like why are you a bad me. host she's like why are you such a bad host and I felt so Malcriado, conflicted yeah. and guilty yeah like conflicted and guilty that like I wasn't able to serve them but I was like tending to my wife in the hospital but then, I'm like, sorry, my wife was sick. <laughs> like, yeah, like, so but then, they wanted to do that. Like that's how they like show like yeah. their care and concern. Like they were like, no, don't worry about anything. Like, but some people show it with like weird stuff, like money and stuff, or yeah. like you know, like my abuelita's really religious and stuff, or not like religious, but like superstitious and yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. So she's like, mijo, I'm gonna get the. Uh, like, I got you the soap. With the egg and you know, yeah, it's like, oh, cool. It, I appreciate that. There was this level of like, like concern and care yeah. that they gave, and then on the flip side, my parents that were like, "Well, you tell us exactly what you need, and when you need it, we'll be there." Yeah, and they were very much out of the way, and like That's her cool, whole family man. came to the hospital like all at once to see Jasmine, and then they all left. This is for the flu. This was no, no, no I was yeah. exaggerating. No, I was pretty sick. It was, oh, okay. was pretty yeah. sick. So it was like legit. Yeah, yeah it was wow. legit. legit. And yeah, so, but like, you know, her family came and like, <laughs> like H one N one. And and then so then you know they they left, and then it, when went my family, my folks, just my parents came. Uh-huh. They were real quiet. Yeah, my, they were there for like half an hour. My mom gave her a sponge bath while she was like oh, half asleep. Yeah. And then like, uh, let us know what the doctor's prognosis is. And se fueron. And it was like, visita del doctor. Like everybody, yeah. like, but I think that's also culturally like, gente mexicana bien humilde, like old school. Like, yeah. visita del doctor y ya, y se van. And, and, yeah. Well, there's a lot of trust placed in doctors. Where it's like, yeah, right. like, yeah, this guy says, you're going to die, you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> That, ha- yeah. that happened to me when I was in Mexico one time. I got, I'd gotten like dysentery, which is like, it was the first time when I actually first started writing Bang, I went down there to do some research on the UNAM. It was the first time I went to the UNAM. And I thought I was like going to eat this empanada. It was like, everything was crowded. I woke up really late. I was like, oh man, I just want some like a quick eat, get on the metro, go down the UNAM. And I ate this like really gnarly empanada. <laughs> and it was like like dysentery, which is like, like, nobody gets dysentery in like, what was this, 2012. Like, People wow. in Oregon Trail, like the video game, get dysentery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like nobody gets dysentery. But it was one of those things where, like, 
I was just, I lost so much fluid. And I remember just watching, it was the, it was the, the year that the Spurs, which I'm from Austin, man, so the San Antonio Spurs are like my jam. It was the year I was watching the Spurs uh, going up against, I think it was like the Dallas Mavericks or something that year. And they were losing and I thought they were going to go to the NBA finals. And I was really excited. And this doctor comes to visit me while I'm watching the game. And she's like, you know, I think you're, I lost so much fluid. She's like, your organs are going to start shutting down soon. And you should call your mom. And, um, you know, I had this one That's aunt scary. who like nobody calls in Mexico City. Uh, it, it's a longer story, but like, it was like sort of last ditch effort. Like, hey, call, call her. <laughs> so she came <laughs> and I was just like, this is how it ends. Like, you know, Spurs lose, I'm dying here. Like no music, just what? this is it, you know? It, yeah. But then like the thing that saved me, this is a true story was like, I, I, I'm fat, right? I have like a little bit of punch. Yeah. And like, I had enough moisture in my gut to like salvage my organs. Wow. They get, they shot me up with antibiotics and stuff. And I was like resurgent. I was like, oh, I cannot be stopped. And it was like, yeah, <laughs> That's I was back. Dope. Yeah, but this this aunt like invited me to like Xochimilco, which is like yeah. a little boat thing. But like, there's nothing like being on a boat when you're like, when you have dysentery, when you're like recovering from dysentery. <laughs> and then being this, on a boat. Yeah, and I had this cousin named Mochito. He's a really sweet guy, but like he's a... Uh, uh, he, he was just like 16 and stuff. And so he's like always wanting to get into like trouble. I'm like, man, come on. You know, I'm, I'm got dysentery, you know, like, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> like let me, like, time. Let me yeah. but, I, but that, that feeling of just being like cared for and just sort of having those that like, like hand around is like, oh man, that made it so much better. That, that matters, right? Right. All yeah. That, matters, that shit right? matters. Yeah. That's awesome. But it was kind of in that way. It was like a very quiet, silent way. Right. Where it was like, kind of like, uh, just, my this people is are like, way. here's the merengue and the platanos. Let's make <laughs> yeah. you better. I'm like, this now is not the time. <laughs> yeah. This is where the dancing and the Please. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> the problems of an introverted Dominican. Yeah. <laughs> yes. well, on that note, though, we so, yeah. some from him. So yeah. Introduce our guest. Um, so what we'll do too is um, on our the next little segment, we'll do all the bits and pieces for uh, our full interview with Daniel Peña. So we'll take a quick little pause, and we'll be back. And we're back. <laughs> So, uh, welcome to, uh, um, I always feel like it's a radio show and I need to remember that it's not a radio show. It's a podcast. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of uh, we, this is Inkwell. Uh, you probably paused and maybe went to the restroom and we're glad you joined us back. I'm back. Uh, and so here we are, uh, interviewing Daniel Peña, uh, on his new book, um, Bang. By Arte Publico Press. Gonna go ahead and introduce oh, it. You're gonna do the bio. That's yes. why you took that. Uh, y'all didn't see this, but she took the piece of paper. I was like, "Why are you taking the piece of paper? You want me to?" Because you want to hear my voice too. Sometimes. So here we go. Equality. That was shade. <laughs> that was shade. Gender equality. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Daniel Peña is a Pushcart Prize winning writer and assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Houston downtown. Formerly based out of La Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, La UNAM. In Mexico City, Peña worked as a writer, blogger, book reviewer, and journalist. He is a Fulbright Garcia Robles Scholar and a graduate of Cornell University. His fiction has appeared in Plowshares, The Rumpus, The Kenyan Review Online, Callaloo, and Huisache, among others. He's currently a regular contributor to The Guardian and The Plowshares blog. His novel, Bang, is due out uh, in January, the end of this month, from Arte Publico Press. He lives in the beautiful H O U. What? Houston, well, Texas. Well, yeah. Well, Thanks so for having me, man. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so let's let's yeah. do this for uh, a lot of the listeners that are listening to the podcast um, who don't know anything about Bang. Give us kind of just 
an overview. overview. No spoilers. No spoilers. It's a, it's a novel just about a Whataburger. No. It's a novel about Whataburger, yeah. No, it's a, it's a story about essentially, I, I think in a, in a capsule, it's sort of in a, in, a, in a sort of a microcosm. It's about, you know, the people who are sort of systematically rejected from society and the systems that they create, right? It's about two brothers who crash a plane in Mexico, who one of them gets absorbed into a cartel, a Cotemoc. Uli sort of has to sort of fend for himself. And it's about how the sort of, you know, we think of it's, you know, people coming from, uh, or even Mexican-Americans is sort of like, oh, if you are Mexican-American, you, you must feel comfortable sort of within the social fabric of Mexico. But these are fundamentally American people, right? We're just talking about right now with DACA and immigration, but these are like people who have grown up in the United States. And when they, like, Uli is in the Mexican fabric, how does he cope? And so that's where June comes in and all this kind of stuff. And so... In a, in, a, in a nutshell, it's what happens not only through the people we systematically exclude from society, um, but also the way in which these systems we create can break apart families, right. explode families. Yeah. Well, even I, I love the the fact that the the level in which the family dynamic works in the book, um, they're already on the fringe, even in Texas. And yeah. that's another thing uh, I love about the book is I have always been able to read. Uh, about the Mexican identity from a Southwest point of view, uh, from Cali all the way down to Arizona, you know, Nuevo Mexico yeah. and all that. But I love the fact that Bang starts us off in Texas. Yeah. And so, like, that concept, like, everything that was in the book felt very much like uh, it, it was all the things that I grew up with. And uh-huh. so, like, even the references to the music that's in the book, yeah. I was like, did he just, like, peek in my backyard? <laughs> and somebody <laughs> told. So, like, all of it, like, made total sense. Yeah. And I literally could picture, like, everything that was happening. So, oh, man. That means a lot. Awesome, that really awesome means stuff. a lot. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing about uh, about Mexico. It was like, I feel like nobody, you know, the way Texas is written about it. And there are a few people who do it really well. Like, you know, Azaldo does it, like, the right, best, you right, know. Right. But it's like, I felt like nobody has sort of linked... I don't know. Maybe people have. You know, I think of Yuri Herrera and, and some other folks who've talked about sort of the, the drug war in the context of immigration and other things. And uh, I feel like that was important to me. Yeah, and especially because, like, I don't know, growing up in Texas, that's uh, I thirty five. That's a major drug corridor, right. like I ten East coming right here. Yeah. All of it. All of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and then also that level of like just the conversation in terms of what does human trafficking look like. That there's yeah. uh, an article that just came out in the Chronicle about a big old bust that happened uh, in the Gulfton area. Oh. Wow. Um, and so like. As I'm reading Bang and then reading that article, it's like it, it's this is the perfect time for this book to come out. So felicidades on, on thank you. Bang. I really appreciate that. So that's yeah. cool. So do you uh, want to start by reading us an excerpt and then we'll uh, get into yeah. our questions? I could do that. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. So I'll just yeah, I'll read the first uh, little chunk of the book, and then are we gonna read like a second chunk later? Yeah, yeah. Or, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'll save my best stuff for later, <laughs> but I'll get I'll get the I'll get this one. It's actually my favorite chunk of the book. It's called Flying Mexicans. Misplaced is the word Araceli would use. Like her husband was a lost set of keys or a good pair of scissors, she doesn't want to return to the neighbors yet. Misplaced. First in the spring when he was deported, when the earth was full of holes and the air was spiced with baby citrus trees starving to be grounded. Then in the summer when the rattlesnakes multiplied at the end of the great drought, when the rains brought the crops back from the dead, and still her husband hadn't arrived. He told her he'd return today, just like he said he'd return back in the spring. And so Araceli waits at that spot on the culvert 
where he was picked up by the police. That's the place he said he'd be. She said she'd meet him there. In her hands, she holds a portable transistor radio that she's modified to pick up police radios, EMT radios, border patrol radios, and twangy redneck rag chew coming in over the CB airwaves. She listens for any news of her husband, trying to make sense of the garbled English blaring from the transistor speaker. The radio cuts in and out, static. The jagged, kinked lengths of copper wire from her modified radio jangle out over Araceli's knuckles as she tries to fix what's wrong. Araceli is good with electronics, gears, and generally anything that can be broken and fixed again. She can make or repair anything. She's frustrated with the failing radio, though she's just as frustrated with the general situations of things. She gets that way sometimes. If one thing goes wrong in her life, everything goes wrong in her life, and she has trouble making sense of anything at all. Everything gets tainted by that feeling, by that frustration too. Out by the road, she takes the positive end of a wire and circuits it through a capacitor that's hooked to a spool of copper wire round around a rolled-up, glued-up mess of refrigerator magnets. She flips the radio off, then flips it back on to amplify the signal again. She tunes into the 5,000 kilohertz band. Nothing. She takes a step to the left, does it again. This time she hears something. She turns the volume up high. She listens to the rag chew coming in over the airwaves, listening for any news of her husband. She listens so hard, trying to make sense of the English, she can't tell if the voice coming in is a cop or a truck driver. She understands very little of what's being said. It all sounds the same to her. Fuck this, she says to herself in perfect English. Nearly 20 years in Texas, and that is the one thing she's mastered. Fuck this. She loves to say it. It feels good. She wraps the loose, kinked copper wire around the busted transistor radio and throws the whole mess out into the road. She waits for a car to run it over, crush it into a million little pieces. But there's not a single car in sight. Her little creation just sits out there in the road, taunting her. She gets busy ignoring the radio by staring past it, thinking of her husband. He said he'd come today. For all of her husband's lies, she still believes in him. Ten minutes go by. The radio remains uncrushed. Araceli can't stand the sight of it. She turns toward the milk jug behind her, the same jug her husband dropped the day he got deported. It lies where it was originally dropped in the culvert. Araceli remembers that he'd bought the milk from the Texaco on the corner. The earth grew brown around where the milk spilled where they took him away. Araceli thinks about moving the jug, but then thinks against it. Might be bad luck. She believes in those kinds of things. She wears a, red, a Catholic scapular around her neck to ward off evil, though she stopped believing in God after her first child, Gautemoc, was born. Her change of heart wasn't informed so much by disbelief than by her incredible belief in luck, both good and bad, and the way those forces had always ruled her life. She carries her lucky wool Zapotec purse across her body, under her clothes. Araceli remembers that her mother gave her that purse before she died. She said it was full of treasures, but Araceli fil found it filled with only five, only five square fabric samples ripped from a salesman binder advertising for quinceanera dresses, bangaline silk, lace tulle, organza, satin, chiffon. She feels a slight pang when thinking back on the simplicity of her mother, that woman she was trying so desperately to escape. 
Her mother's family in Guerrero pushed her to Texas as much as her husband took her. Her mother loved the bangaline silk, Araceli's least favorite, but her husband loved the satin, her favorite. She was 16 when she met her future husband, 32, at a horse racing track in Guadalajara. She thought he was American by the dumb, bleached Panama hat he was wearing. She remembers he was rangy, long arms and no paunch. He was slightly sunburnt, his skin a glowing bronze. She was selling tewino, a fermented corn drink from a cart, and brought him one to slurp down. He paid her, and only once he opened his mouth did she realize he was Mexican, from the north. Where? she asked, refusing to leave his side. Chihuahua. Are you visiting, she asked. I'm betting. From under her dress, she unlatched the wool purse and brought out her lucky satin square. She rubbed it, and he rubbed it. His horse won. And from this mutual love for the same square of fabric bloomed a marriage, a home, two children, and work in an orange grove in Harlingen, Texas, all before she was 23. She's 39 now. She holds on to that little square of satin now and looks at the milk jug, looks out into the road. To the right, nothing. To the left, the bright red LED display over the Texaco with the digital American flag glowing, price, glowing between gas prices. 92 degrees tonight, 7 o'clock, Monday, June 1st, 2015. Her youngest son, Uli's birthday. She takes the chiffon patch from her purse and rubs that too between her thumb and index. She remembers Uli loved chiffon as a baby. Her oldest son, Kotemak, too, though he loves anything lush, it seems. Alcohol, cigarettes, salty foods, everything bad for you. She looks for him, too, out in the road in his father's blue pickup truck where her husband left behind, which her husband left behind. She was supposed to go with Kotemak to the Texaco to buy Uli's present, but she never steps past the milk jug these days. After her husband was deported, she couldn't take the risk. She's close enough to give to the Grove property where she could jump back behind the fence, even with her hobbled foot. She wonders sometimes why her husband didn't do the same. He's the one that taught her the rules of private property in America. He taught her about warrants and police and calling the ACLU lawyer from that little prepaid cricket phone she always forgets to carry. She gets stir-crazy out there. She looks out to the left again, then the right. She looks at her mistake of her creation out in the road, that shitty transistor radio turned scanner. She knows her husband is coming from San Miguel, which is in Chihuahua, which is in the northeast part of Mexico, right next to the thumb of Texas. He drives south and then east toward Harlingen, which is, which is west of the milk jug. Araceli creates a map in her head to figure out which side of the road that she should be staring down. She decides to stare down the right side of the road. She sees nothing. She wishes she could lie down in the middle of the road, right next to the radio, and wait for whatever luck comes her way. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Man, first of all, bang, an amazing read. He's banging. Oh, man. That's a terrible pun. That's a terrible pun. I appreciate that. Was that like an early 2000s slang word? That's the perfect. That's, that's, it it was, it was very, it was a slick read. Like it was a very, it was so smooth. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it it was, just flowed. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, But okay. So there were a a few of the questions that I had. So I have like three or four. Uh huh. um, And we'll probably like, you know, yeah, we'll bounce back and forth, and whatever happens, happens. I mean, I have a ton of questions, but we don't have time for all my questions, and I also don't uh-huh. want to do any spoilers. So we'll we'll go ahead. Question <laughs> I have actually is, um, I'm always curious um, uh, in terms of like the the level of storytelling 
and then like the voice that we hear that's telling a story. So in this instance, um, who is this narrator? Like uh. who, all the things that they're noticing and that the level in which the story is being told, like is very, mm, all the, the heaviness that could be all the events happening in the book. Don't read as heavy events that are happening. In the oh, book. Yeah. Like the narrator is speaking in such a way that it's very matter of fact. So who is this individual? Like wh- yeah. what, what did you imbued them with to like be able to put all this together? Yeah. It was really trying to, so the first like iterations of the book were actually uh, the protagonist was Guatemoc. And I was like, mm. and Guatemoc was kind of um, a little bit of a misanthrope, a little bit of a, of a just a, I mean, he's just a, like a, a maladjusted dude. He almost has a clinical way of looking at. Um, I mean, in the book, he talks. We talk about a little bit about like he accidentally kills a kid, and that sort of messes him up, and that sort of dictates sort of his future, but also the way in which um, he sort of interacts with. I don't know how he processes, like how he processes. Yeah. yeah, and so like when I was first writing those when those first iterations of it, it was all Quatemoc, and I actually was working with a, a guy at the time who was helping me edit it, who was like, I think this would be a great third person, but keep, like, keep that voice, you know, whatever that is. And so Quatemoc, I was like, oh, but it was one of those things that even when I try to make it like sort of clinical or try to keep it in a, like that Quatemoc's voice was always bleeding through. And so um, it's weird because he's not the protagon- protagonist anymore. I got all like Latino for a second. But he's not, but he's not, but like that voice, yeah. um, I think it's like incidentally his, but it wasn't something I was like consciously channeling. It was just like, I couldn't, like I'd been writing on it for so long that that's, that's him, man. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Very good. Well, and for me it was, it struck out and we talked about this briefly outside of this conversation, but um I, I was really stunned by there's so many what I felt were very poetic lines and very oh, like imagery and like imagistic <laughs> like moments. Yeah. Um and, and just like and there was just like I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they're sports, they're they're rich enough and they're in there, but they happen sometimes suddenly that I'm like, oh, and then I'm like, yes, that's a line. Um and, and I know you you'd mentioned to me before that just like you are interested in like the line in like yeah. in fiction and like you try to you don't consider yourself a poet, but I'm like, these. this is, sounds very poetic. I mean, there's so I much wish detail. I wish I was a poet. You're a poet. So Am I really? Yeah, you're a poet. There. Do you guys give me license? I, uh, yes. You yes. Know, you I'm a right. uh, This is imp- uh, uh, um, Inkwell, and we <laughs> do poetry licensing, so five days a week. I guess my question is just like, you know, how much do you do you think about that? And, um, you know, I guess how did that influence like your telling of this story? No, it's weird. Like I try to convey this to my students. Like when I was teaching in Germany, like my marriage students will be like, "Yeah, that's how it is." I tell them like what I just like anything, and they're like, oh, "I believe you." But my German students are like really weirdly suspicious. But I was like talking about how, I mean, you guys have this where you're writing a poem and like you can hear the line mm-hmm. before you can actually write the line, which is I think the worst way to write because mm-hmm. if you're trying to write long form anything, yeah, it's just like man, it's 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 so frustrating. And then it comes out that like I, you got to break it. It's like it's like if you have an Ikea chair and then you have to like tighten all the stuff and you want each line to sound beautiful, right, but it's like right, ratcheting up every screw. Right. And then you try to sit in that chair and it's all bockety. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. and like, you got to yeah. finger tighten, right? Yeah. right. But like uh, I, I, I'm, I love the way that sort of the, 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 the language of the way it's like sort of like, I don't know, narration is really important to me. It's something I think about a lot. And so, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I appreciate it that. Yeah, I, just, no, yeah. I definitely felt like, I don't know, the, the narrator was some kind of like, poet but like a a distant poet and like you said he it's it's not so much 
I don't know if it's matter of fact or nonchalant is the right word. I don't know, but it's like, this is just the way it is. Like, uh-huh. this is what happens. This is what happened to these people. And it's just, but there's still like a tenderness and an emotion and like a connection that you have to these characters, at least for me. Yeah. You know, I so. felt the narrator was very much real ranchero. Like, no, really. Yeah. There's this level of like, it, the, and the difference too in the way like we listen to stuff. So the, I like growing up with corridos and yeah. rancheras as a kid, like, I always paid attention to lyrics, right? And there was always a narrative voice in these stories. And when I I thought back to the fact that like that nonchalant level of how a song comes out, right? Yeah. But the that's level, the only place you're allowed to cry is right, that song. Like yeah. the, the level of language and the level of lyric that's mm-hmm. being expressed oh. is so poignant. Oh, and wow. you would think because it's coming from such a rough exterior, like all these old school corridos from like the 20s on into like the 60s and the 70s, yeah. like they're written from such a place that's very emotional. Well, it's like el rey. A lot el of it's rey. about dignity. Right. You know, and like all these dignity and, pieces, like yeah. all the lessons that life can provide and all these little things. I think that that started resonating for me as I was reading the book. And oh, so, wow. Like that, that there's a quirkiness to that narrator and then he you know and at the end and as the book ended it I, all of a sudden in my head i like that old school corrido yeah. was like tan tan like it was yeah. just like <laughs> just like the end of the song i mean cuz it's like the, it, it's just so straightforward some and, of it is like you know ballad of you know cortez or yeah, gregorio yeah, yeah, cortez yeah, or yeah, something yeah, kind of yeah. like intense yeah but no it's like it, it's those things i think you you know if you grow up in a household that has sort of like you know, and for what it's worth, I feel like like my parents were not like really into sort of contemporary music. Like I felt like my mom, when she wanted to punish us, she's like, I'm going to listen to the Tejano station. You know? <laughs> and, like, and, you know, my Spanish was like sort of rough growing up, but you sort of understand it. You have sort of like a, a context for it. But like that, those tropes are sort of so latent. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing that feeds into machismo. It's the same thing that feeds into, uh, you know, sort of like that Catholic guilt or the same right. thing that feeds into the corrido or, right, or right, bolero right. or whatever. But I feel like those those tropes of of just like working through your masculinity, which is like these are the characters are doing. Um, yeah, no, it's like I, I I didn't mean for that to happen, but I wonder if like some of that sort of the oogie boogie through Quatemoc was right, the, right, like right, the, right. the proto narrator in the beginning. And it's interesting yeah. too that you're mentioning, you know, because I it was interesting to me to find that the first chapter is Araceli, right? And yeah. So then at first, I'm of course I'm like going in there and I'm like, there's a man writing about a woman. What's he going to see? You know. <laughs> And I love you, yeah. Daniel, but I'm always kind of like, okay, what's, yeah. how's this going to go and how's this going to work out? But I found it really fascinating that she is kind she is, you know, because the father is gone so much, like uh-huh. she's learned these skills. She's learned how to fix cars. She knows how to like do this thing with the transmitter radio and yeah. she's very like strong-willed and, and it's, but it's also kind of implied. Like, it's just like, it's just a thing she does. There's yeah. no like mysticism to like, oh, her being like the mom I, and the dad. No, she's I, just I, like, I gotta take care of what I gotta do. I'm gonna make a scanner. Yeah, exactly. I also think Araceli, like Araceli is my favorite character, um, but there's an element of her, like she's crafty and mm-hmm. she she also grew up in this situation where she was like, there's a line there, she's used to like unfucking things that people fuck up, you yeah. know, and that's like the story, like she's trying yeah. to unfuck she's her children's exactly, lives. Exactly, And she's going to Mexico, but like, yeah. uh, she's also one of these people that I think is extremely uh, bored. Like, mm-hmm. and nobody talks about like that experience of sort of like, you know, sort of those gender roles that get put in. So she, she she knows these things that are just like like radio thing. How do you make a scanner out of a transistor radio? And um, she's just crafty. 
but she's a little bit delinquent too. That I lo- that's what I love about her. Yeah. And she starts selling those blunts. And stuff. I know. I was like, she's why like, is she rolling blunts? Where, yeah, see, <laughs> she smokes. She knows, uh, yeah. By the way, there's blunt selling. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of no, things um, yeah. So, okay. So Jasmine kind of mentioned it before and this jumps down to my like fourth question, but influences in poetry. What, what were you, oh, what have you read that kind of, cause like whether you admit yeah. it or not, and if you were confused about it, I will grab you by both shoulders and shake the <laughs> shit out of you. Poet. <laughs> What, I appreciate what, that. What, yeah. what are you reading? Like, what were what are some of those things that you've read poetry wise? Not so much the the nonfiction or the uh, the fiction. But oh man, what yeah. are those poetry things that you were reading that may have influenced some of this? I'm always reading poetry. I love Reginald Dwayne Betts. That guy is like, he's so good with like. I mean, the the, the poems cast like two three shadows, and you know, it's just like it's a, he's an interesting guy. He's also like um, has an interesting story. Like that dude. Uh, Older dudes like Edward Hirsch, man. It's just like I love that guy, but also like uh, Ana Castillo. Yeah. I love Ana Castillo. Uh, Carmen Tafoya, I like. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, Juan Felipe Herrera. Is like you know our oh, former no, poet, yes. Yes, laureate. Love yeah, him. but also just sort of like he's so good with the image. I feel like yeah. most people don't realize it. Yeah. And then the sort of the turn of the line, uh, man. Like so many but, people. But yeah. his work is also very political, which this book yeah. is. I mean, it's not forthright, but I mean, it's all about sort of these this border politics, right? And these things happening and. Going back and forth, and so which I also found interesting, which was one of my questions about like the amount of research that like you oh, have yeah. to go. Oh, she took another into, question. Yeah, well, yeah. we have this thing where we have good like minds, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just because I was as I was reading, I was like, well, he has to fly planes. I mean, there's no way that he like doesn't yeah. fly planes with like this much detail and what's happening. Or maybe you learned to fly planes for the book. I don't know. So like, what was yeah. like the research process like for you for this? Yeah, no, like mm-hmm. the one thing I really take pride in was that like most of these sort of. It's, you know, when I first started this book, I was like thinking about like sort of like just, you know, how is it that you sort of tackle something like the drug or without like sensationalizing it? And I wanted to be as true to the story. I didn't want to make anything up. And so like most of these stories come from headlines and things like that. And just sort of going down that rabbit hole and just being like, okay, well, you know, and I knew I didn't want to write about cartels. I didn't want to make this like the cartel book or something yeah. like that. Um, but I wanted it to be sort of like, you know, people and their problems, not like sort of like problems, macro problems and their people. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that sort of research was in, uh, yeah, it was like the UNAM and hanging out there and just looking at sort of like sort of uh, the drug war history, the people that were involved in it, but also the way in which like immigration and the drug war are like really intertwined. I feel like nobody talks about that. Like the way in which we feed the drug war with like you know, bodies, right? We deport mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. who, and we send them literally to the, to the worst zones, right? To like right at the border, like Matamoros or Piedras Negras or something. And then they're waiting for them. And there's a whole, it's fascinating, that kind of stuff. But in terms of like the flying stuff, I used to be a pilot and everyone thinks I'm like humble bragging when I say I was like, I'm a, I was a bad pilot, but I was like, it was a genuinely like a terrible pilot. <laughs> I was like the worst pilot You knew enough to write yeah. like a really, like lots of really great sections. Yeah. Like, like think of how many times the guy almost crashed in the yeah, story. And did, like, that's like, kind of like, I know what it's like to almost crash. <laughs> you know, like I, I know what that's, that feels, that's a bad feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, when I was, uh, when I was in, uh, at Texas A&M, uh, it was, I did my undergraduate there and it was one of these, they had a fleet, right? It's a military school and they had that like uh, a fleet and one of my roommates, uh, his dad flew from Mexicana Airlines. And so he's like, um, the sort of the, the thing was like, he was not going to become a pilot. He sort of had his own sort of trajectory and the dad was about to retire. And he's like, hey, if you want to sort of take my dad's place in this company, it's sort of like a little bit of nepotism. Um, you just need 150 like flight hours and I can get you an interview at Mexicana. And so um, I trained, I got my pilot's license. I was going to do that thing. And then, uh, 
the the Mexicana basically collapsed. It's like oh. the it got oh. like the company just um, fell through. Over. Yeah, and so this was like also two thousand eight, two thousand nine. The economy had collapsed, and uh, I remember Sherman Alexi had come to give a reading, and uh, I was asking about. I was I'd always been writing, right? I asked him like, you know, hey, uh, you know, what do I do? <laughs> Like what I do, and he he was like, "You have nothing better to do. Like you're you're basically fucked. Like you know, you have you, you can't you don't have a flight career. You don't have uh you know all you can do is write. There's the, it's also it's like the best excuse. You just write. Right. There's nothing right. you can do. You can't yeah. get a job. Yeah. True. You know. True. What are you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> but that's where the flying stuff. And I was like, ah, I'll put it to use. And yeah, no, yeah. it's great. I mean, it, it worked really well in the book. I think. Yeah. So kind of like a plug, but not a plug. So we do writing workshops through Thinkdental Project. Yeah. And we had the actual ability to. To have Daniel be one of our uh, workshop writing leads—that was that was uh, awesome, yeah. And thank you for doing that. Uh, we did that this past October, um, and in the workshop, which was an awesome opportunity, um, uh, Daniel led a workshop on uh, writing about the things that you truly know, like the detailed, organized, like all those elements that you were expert at, and so like all of that shined through uh, in bang. Oh, what are some other things that you're an expert at that maybe <laughs> I didn't I make an expert at anything yeah. in, the, in the book, like that you knew enough that you know enough about oh, to man. Like, be able to like write? I mean, I, I know quite a bit just because I've written like in the Guardian or something about like the drug war and contemporary Mexican politics and that kind of stuff. And I, there's like some of that that bleeds through here, um, but I didn't want to make it like sort of like I, at the end of the day, I really wanted to make it about people and their problems, not like problems. So like I was trying really hard. Like I have a lot of feelings. If you googled me on the Guardian about like the Peña Nieto administration yeah. and, and sort of what happened with the kids in Oyotinapa, and, and it's like that endlessly fascinates me. The way in which, and it's it's one of these things that you I have to have a little bit of sort of because I, I have Mexican citizenship, but I I, I was I did not grow up in Mexico, right. so I have to be a little bit sort of like uh, uh, I have to appreciate that you know it's 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 a, it's not the system. I can judge that system. But at the end of the day, it's t- it's it's not my system, and yeah. it's like it's also a system that works and has worked, um, for better or for worse, in the way it has is manifested. Uh, I remember one time I asked a Mexican uh, friend of mine, I said, "Don't you get like really riled up about sort of the corruption and the white sinapa mm-hmm. and that's these kids?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know, but it's a it's it's a broken system, but it's a, it's a system. <laughs> like it, right. just because it's not yours yours doesn't mean or you you know." Like basically, what you imperialist pig? Like, what are you? Why are you trying to project your shit onto us? Yeah. To a question, because you know, yeah. I'm struggling with this a lot too. With my, I'm not a Dominican citizen, but like with just my my own work and research, and you know, doing work that um, researches but criticizes and is is critical yeah. of maybe not criticizes but is critical of you know their government. And but I live here, and like, have you ever felt like any? I don't know, hostility is the right word, but just kind of, you know, anyone from Mexico being like, you know, who are you to write about oh, this? Oh, yeah, man. Say, Yeah, so what was, All the yeah, time, tell yeah. me about that. I mean, the, the most yeah. famous example of that was when, uh, do you guys remember, like, this was like 2015 or something like that, when uh, the Egyptian government had aerated a group of people on ATVs, and they, they they thought they were terrorists, but they were Mexican nationals who were just like oh. doing like oh, ATV stuff that. out in the desert. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. They were just and out there. And the Mexican government, the Impedi administration came out and said- you know, we demand a full investigation in this. We also demand like sort of reparations for the family, et cetera, et cetera, as a head of state would do, right? Um, but I came out with an op-ed where I was like, "Man, you guys killed the forty-three students. Like, yeah. you have no, you have, you you cannot demand that of a foreign government. So you investigate your own your killing own, of these yeah. people stuff." Yeah. And uh, it was a thing that I uh, wasn't expecting to go as viral as it did. When it was like huge. Uh, it was actually really kind of cool. Like people put like signs and stuff. It was crazy, but um, it was the the 
this is like tickled me to no end because it was uh it was it was sort of it was bizarre in that sort of Peña Nieto administration way where the ambassador from Mexico to the UK, uh, in the UK they have what they call right of response. It's like they have libel laws. Mm-hmm. And so if you find that you are being sort of like, uh, you know, lambasted in the media, you can respond in that same publication and legally they have to allow you. Um, and they were like, I was just like nobody. I was just like this like adjunct at LSU. <laughs> and they were just like, Mr. Pena gets it all wrong. You know, he does not. And it was like this official right of response in The Guardian. And I was like, what? I'm nobody. Like, it's weird <laughs> that you guys would like, like make time for this. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, yeah. but it obviously, how much of the truth of there is that, that you actually had to respond, right? Like, yeah. Like, like what, them. don't you guys, shouldn't you guys be fighting those kids? Like, don't you have <laughs> right? something better to do yeah. than yeah. responding to my, but it, I was amazed, but it was like a, a thing I later found out. I was like, it got into like Los Pinos. Like it got into the, like the president was worried about it. It was like sort of, there's a mini, Aristegui News covered it, but it was one of those things where, uh, that, that was a thing where I was like, I got the first taste of like, you know, Hey, you're from a Like, what yeah. do you, what do you have to say about any of this, but I'm yeah. also like, at the end of the day, you know, I could, I could, I, I, yes, I am, but I, I'm also like a human being, and like those 43 kids are still killed, you still know, matter. and yeah, you can still, yeah, human, yeah, yeah, and and that's, man, that's dope. I mean, that's deep and dope. Yeah, I should, I said they were killed. They're not killed. Like they're missing. Like I me, mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about it, but yeah. Did you want to read another little short section? Uh, Maybe. Do you have a short section? That yeah, you can I can read the close us out Yvonne. With? Uh, man, what page? Oh, is I it? love Yvonne. He's such a he's, he's such a, a dipshit. Like, <laughs> he's a character. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's yeah. Yvonne is is um is like uh yeah. I'll just read from Yvonne. Yeah, he's he's. I don't know how long this will take. I'll do. I'll just go for it. Okay. On slow mornings like this, most mornings are slow these days. Iban sometimes stands in front of the vanity and wonders if he isn't the only thing that's aged in Hotel Luna. He stands in front of the mirror this morning and checks for any new gray hairs, any new wrinkles that have appeared overnight. He's only 60, but he thinks he might look a decade older. His photographer's hunch has made him a full inch shorter than his former 5'5 frame. He's narrow on the shoulders. He has a little belly. He wears square bifocals whose temples have broken off long ago and have since been replaced with green twine that he's attached at the hinges and looped behind his ear to keep them on. Though he doesn't know it, his clothes belong to to that time capsule as well. He wears the same green sweater that he bought when his first check as a photographer for a magazine called Extremo in the mid-80s came in. The brown buttons on his beige shirt and brown pants have either chipped or fallen away. He makes up for that slouchy, sloppy way his clothes hang on him by ironing the creases of his pants and shirt to death. Everything about him suggests he's clean, but washed out, completely dried up in every way. He sits down behind the faux marble counter of the hotel to read the day's news. But as soon as he does, Ivan glances up from his paper and stares at the plague of grackles perched along the street lamps and power lines and frayed banner strings that cut up the sky of Matamoros. He hates those birds for the noise they make, but he hates them more for being untethered. He lays his paper down and gets up off his own perch behind the counter in his five-bedroom hotel and steps outside to feel the heat rising up from the pavement into the soles of his cheap Tres Hermanos brand sneakers. He throws his hands together into a single palmy clap. 
the sound of which ricochets from the concrete squat single stories across the street and trebles out with a long electric wang that sets the birds up from their perch, all of them in unison. They take off into the sky like a long black cloud overhead, just the flapping of their wings. And then that sound that Ivan so much longs for. Silence, if only for a little while. He soaks in the quiet the way he does every morning. He closes his tired eyes and exhales, and then, as if resigned to his own fate, he walks back into the Hotel Luna, that hotel which he never wanted in the first place, which he inherited from his mother immediately following her death ten years ago and holds him every day like a rat in a cage. To Ivan, everything around him is a time capsule of when his mother was still alive, the counter, the too large mahogany vanity that takes up the short wall perpendicular to the counter that gives the tiny foyer the optical illusion of being bigger than it really is, the pale green doors that seal off each bedroom, the digital cash register from the 80s that just won't die, the brass hooks screwed into the wall behind the counter with four-sided Enfield keys hanging from each one except the last one, which has Ivan's old plastic Diana camera hanging from a leather strap. He'd stopped shooting right after his mother died, but made it a point to keep that camera around, if only to remind him of who he is, or rather, who he was at one time in his life. A photographer with a beat and a budget and a plastic lens which distorted everything, but which he, through which he saw the world that his mother tried her entire life to keep from him. As a boy, Ivan had spent three quarters of his childhood behind that faux marble counter. His mother had her various reasons. At first, it was sun exposure, too much of it. And as he grew into a teenager, it was the gang violence she saw on TV. And as he grew older still, it was the general violence of Matamoros, which could be escaped but couldn't be denied. The images were on every newsstand around their hotel. And it was in this way, when Ivan went to buy a Coke for his mother, say, or when often he'd sneak out to buy a Playboy for himself, he also came to know these images, love them even, because along with the violence came stories and details about the world around him. He'd buy one copy of every crime magazine he could get his hands on. His favorite, by far, was Extremo. He loved it not because the stories were particularly good or the violence more or less graphic than any of the other magazines, but because each issue came with a sensuous centerfold that he'd quickly rip from the stapling, fold into an impossibly tiny square, and stick behind his driver's license in his wallet. Instead of buying Extremo and Playboy, he could get two for one. There was a new woman every week to masturbate to in his room above the hotel, hating himself for finding any pleasure at all in the women that had been chosen for him by some crusty editor whose taste was 70s Americana. Aquanet hairspray, lycra everything, bad eyeshadow that came in all colors of pastels. It was during one of Ivan's typical mid-morning masturbation sessions that the reality of his situation dawned in him. He was in his early 30s, unmarried, childless, careerless, and still under his mother's thumb, something had to change. It was in this desperate moment, with his pants around his ankles and this faux French maid with, with blue eyeshadow looking up at him from the glossy page, that he flipped over the image and found, to his great surprise, a classified ad on the back. Extremo was in need of a photographer, and Ivan decided, then and there, that he would be their man. Never mind the fact that he never owned a camera. Never mind the fact that he'd rarely left his block. Never mind that he would finally, probably, 
have to meet the man who chose the centerfolds and shake his crusty little hand. He was going to do it. And so that day he borrowed the teal Diana from his cousin, Erica. She'd won it at a carnival in Dallas and accidentally kept it in nearly pristine condition due to the fact that it was the worst camera she'd ever owned and had thrown it in a shoebox under her bed and forgotten about it until the day Yvonne called and didn't so much ask to borrow her camera as demand it from her. She warned him in advance. Everything about the Diana was plastic. The casing around the camera was made from two molds that clicked together, and so it suffered light leaks that would expose the film. The plastic lens distorted everything in front of it, and even when you got the right angle, the edges of the photograph would blur. She told him that he would waste more film than any money he could possibly earn, but this was assuaged by the simple fact that the Diana that the Diana Erica handed over came with three rolls of 35-millimeter film previously unused, along with a black, narrow strap that seemed to hug Yvonne's shoulder as if it were custom-made. Because the Diana was a horrible camera, no amount of skill could enhance the outcome of any one photograph. But for Yvonne, the entire exercise came as natural to him as if he were a seasoned photographer. At the very least, the result was the same. Plastic dreamlike photographs whose blurry edges gave the impression that each subject wasn't already dead, but in the process of dying. While other photographers' cameras professionally snapped and whirred alongside him at any given scene, a simple plastic click sounded from Ivan's camera. Often, it would happen that the flash of another camera or the intensity of the streetlight above or the headlights of a passing car would leak into the casing, exposing the film inside. Streaks of orange would cloud the photograph, occasionally appearing just above the body. These were the ones Extremo loved the most. They always wrote about how their photographer could capture souls right as they were departing the body. That orange haze, always consistently there, proof enough. And it was in this way that Ivan made a name for himself in crime reporting. His photography always maintaining that impressionist quality that became the style of his era. He was fearless, or stupid, as some in the industry said, in that he was willing to photograph any corpse in any part of the city at any time of the night. No questions asked. Such was his loyalty to Extremo for ripping him from the Hotel Luna that had imprisoned him for the better part of his life. He never made much money, but it was enough for him to live on, as long as he had the free room above the Hotel Luna, where he slept only when he had to. To this day, he does not know which published photograph set someone off on the dark path of revenge. He does know, however, which one ended his career. Truth be told, he never thought of photographing murder as particularly humil humiliating to the corpse or to the corpse's living family, for that matter. He only saw those murders for what they were, murders and nothing more, nothing less. In his heart, he knew there was no art to what he was doing. No redeeming quality or skill to those photographs. Just reporting. Just a cheap camera. Just a way to get out of the Hotel Luna. It should have come as no surprise, after, after having worked in the industry for more than 10 years, that eventually the gore would find its way to the other side of his lens and grip him as it had so many other photojournalists in Matamoros. He remembers that it was his mother's body that ruined his career. He remembers the smell more than anything, that familiar iron rot that permeated so many murder scenes he'd photographed before, that dampness tinged with the sweet smell of his mother's perfume, like lilacs in the air, that same smell by his bedside of so many nights of his childhood. 
that same sweet lilac that was always thickest behind his mother's perch, behind the faux marble counter at Hotel Luna. He put his camera down that night and crawled into the bed beside her, 70 open knife wounds in her flesh, and put his open palm over every single one, as if trying to stop the blood that was already congealing on her skin. He whispered something to her that he no longer remembers. If anything, he remembers heat of camera flashes on his skin once his colleagues arrived, the slick of the blood on the side of his face. You've been listening to Daniel Peña reading from his collection, Bang, a novel out that is due at the end of January uh, here on Inkwell. Can you tell us, Daniel? <laughs> uh, when uh, does the book release happen? Give us some details. Right on, And then yeah. we'll do a quick lightning round and uh, send you home. Yeah, so uh, it's coming out January 30th, uh, but we're going to be doing an event at Brazos on uh, February 3rd, 7 o'clock at Brazos Bookstore, which is our indie bookstore here in Houston, and uh, I'm excited to do that. Yes. Um, and you'll be signing copies, yes, I'll be and signing reading. Copies. Awesome. This, this is one of the first, man. This is a sign for you guys. Oh, yeah. thank you. Oh, if yeah. you could see our faces, I'm going to cry. Hold on, because this is a debate. It's to Lupe and Jasmine, by the way. And this is the last episode of Inkwell. This is the last episode of Inkwell. We argue about each having our own signed copy of Because I needed to have my own. No, no, no. I messed it up. No, you didn't mess it up. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's not perfect, but we'll make it perfect. All right, lightning round. Very quickly. Wait, I have a quick question first, though. Wait, that's not the way this works. This is That's not how any of this works. You're... So the lightning round, I got to give them the rules. What oh, are, okay. Go okay. So are you, do you have one more question or what do you no, want to do? No, I'll do it for lightning round. Go ahead. What? What? Just go. Tu lo sabes Okay. <laughs> so rules for the lightning round. Um, okay. So lightning round. Well, we give you a series of questions. Okay. You have uh, 60 seconds to answer them. Not oh even. Like just first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Oh, my God. First of all, it, give him the 60 seconds because sometimes Let he needs get, it. Let me get my mind out of the gutter. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get this, so you have 60 yeah. seconds to answer the questions. These are the... Hard pressing questions of the day that matter. These are the okay. That These are the questions that matter. The book, no one cares. <laughs> These, These yeah. questions, it's kind of the game of literature. Let <laughs> us know what is really happening in the lives of writers. Okay, yeah. yeah. These are the hard questions. These are the hard questions. These are the hard ones. I'm. Yeah. I'm Here we go. Shedding off Yvonne. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Here we go. Question number one: Pen or pencil? Pencil. Uh, if you didn't have access to a computer. Composition book or notepad? Uh, I, I, I would. Oh man, I would just. I I, deal, I tell my wife things like that's that, that's a real thing. Like when I have no extra <laughs> things, I just I just tell my wife. I'm like, this is an idea. Can you remember this, please? <laughs> and then like, we, I yeah, guess. yeah. And then we have like, and then we just like, okay, that was a weird thing, and we can remember that weird thing. We attach it. To, yeah, it's great. Good. Yeah. Wow. See, best answers. Uh, question three. Uh, best kind of torta. Uh, ahogada. Torta abogadas, yeah. That's my boy. Any kind of any kind of abogadas, yeah. That's my boy. Um, number four, the mixer that goes with tequila. Um, squirt, squirt. I'm like his dad. Yeah. I'm like that's Lupe's dad. <laughs> it's a paloma. Uh, it's a paloma. <laughs> yeah, it's a paloma. Uh, number five. Uh, okay, scenario. Uh, the power goes out in the house in the middle of you typing a chapter. Yeah. Your reaction. Oh fuck, man! I, yeah, just like that's my, that's my reaction. Is like I'm just fatalism. Just like this is the end. This is kind of like getting dysentery. Like, yeah, this is the end. This is how this is. Yeah, yeah. Zochi Milka after that. Yeah. Uh, question six. Yeah. Netflix binge. What are you watching? Uh, I'm watching Black Mirror. I love Black. No, it's come kind of basic. Yeah, I feel no. basic. Oh, that's not basic. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, are you caught up or are you on? Yeah, I finished it last night. 
so dope, isn't yeah, it? Okay. Yeah, that last. Yeah. Oh, the last one was last unhinged. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number seven, uh, longest road trip to Mexico and where? Uh, I always, oh, man, that's like from Texas, like from Texas. And where uh, in Sabinas, which is like Feria, which yeah. is like, uh, man, what is that? Coahuila. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I've never, I've never driven all the way to Mexico City. You've never driven. No, I've always wanted to, but. Let's do that. For real? I've never been No, for real? That's a, is that a deal? Been, let's do that. Done. A huevo. Let's and do it. Let's do it. Do it. Like when? You realize You guys want to do it? You're in, you're in I'm too, no? I'm sitting in a car for like okay. 24 hours. <laughs> you take That's the, all you. You take so, the Latino <laughs> line, man. The Latino <laughs> from so, Houston. Uh, I can dope. fly and meet y'all there. Oh, But I'm not getting in a car We can do that. Let's do that. Yeah. do that. If y'all already saw that, Josh, is one of the cameras catch that? You got to get in there? Get in there. Yeah. Josh is coming too. Get in there, Josh. Thank you. We're all going to Mexico. That's real awkward. Oh, can I do a question? Can I do my question? Uh, okay, like literally question. one question. Is sluice your favorite word? Oh man, it is. Yeah. Like, I, ca- I was like, yes, I've seen it like four times. <sighs> you know what you spell that? Reyes was making the S L U I C. No, I was having to ask oh. him to spell. Right. Yeah. Good job. I love that word. What is sluice? Good definition. It's sort of like you know when you need a cut and it's sort of like jagged, meanders. I just love that image and I'm like, ooh, I love the image. I love the word. It's slick. It's kind of like it's got a lot of sort of like. Uh, shadows that it casts, I like it. Yeah, came up several times. I was like, "Sluice again," because the first time you notice, it's not a word that's like often used. Yeah. So then I saw it again. I was like, "Oh," and then I was like, oh, this, oh, he likes loose. Yeah, this guy's getting languagey here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, a book you always go back to. Uh, Larry Heineman's Paco story. That's like one of the. It's it's it won the National Book Award in '86. Oh. Kind of not that well known, but like the language is just like go check it. Just go read the first chapter. It's like it'll blow your mind. That's that, that's like the best part of the book, I think. Okay. Number nine. Oh. This is the hardest one. You pull up to a water burger. Yeah. <laughs> what do you order? What do you order? Uh, now, I'm, so I'm getting on 30 right now. I'm going to be 30 in a few days. You're, the water burger junior. Younger than me? Are we? I thought we were. Yeah. No, no, I'm 33. So I got to slow Jesus down. I gotta you sl- got to slow down. Well, I'm, I'm 30. By the time this podcast publishes, I'll be 30. Okay. Like, <laughs> but like, I, but, like, but, but the, the, the water burger junior, man. I used to go to full water burger. I do water burger junior too. Yeah. But I was yeah. like, man, I can't. I don't need a heart attack tomorrow. Yeah. I got like, to slow it down. I'm going to be healthy. Get the water burger junior. But no, but in the book. I'm the a fucking character. fat ass if that's no, the case. Not, I'm could, a fucking patty no, melt. Patty melt. Oh, patty melt. That's a good one too. That's, yeah. I love the Do you do the thick and hearty? No, I want to. I'm scared of thick and hearty. Thick and hearty. The idea in the book for the the mix of things that he put. It was like a water burger sandwich, but with something else in it. Oh, the McGangbang? Yeah. What is that? Oh, it's oh, just it's this or it's this thing. I think it came from actually. I think it came from Houston. Oh, did it? From like the hip hop community in Houston that they would have this like thing called the McGangbang, and I remember like everyone in college was like, "Could I please get the McGangbang?" But it was basically the way you could get the most protein in a in a burger for like. Uh, the dollar menu price. What? But yeah, Interesting. but it was it was it was uh, it's delicious. I mean, I did it once, and I was like, "This is yeah, this is gonna hurt." Yeah, it's, it's if you want a heart attack like tomorrow, like that's that's what you're doing. Yeah. Right. So the Waterburger Junior. I guess I'm gonna have to start doing that now. Yeah, it was it was basically like a student friendly way to just nice. get fed. Yeah. Uh, number ten, uh, ranchero or cumbia? Ranchero, man, ranchero. Done. Really? That's perfect. I mean, cumbia is great too. Don't get me wrong. No, no, no. Yeah, that's but ranchero. Yeah. You had any other questions? That's I cool. was going to ask fiction or poetry, but you can't really. I mean, obviously, it's fiction. Um, yeah, I got to go fiction, man. I, I'm Although poetry is like, I love poetry. I read a lot. I probably read it more than fiction right now. <laughs> also, very quickly, I did want to promote the Sin Muros Latina Latino Theater Festival happening February 1st through the 4th. So during the day, come to the festival. At night, go to uh, Daniel's Reading. Yeah, I'm excited um, for that. And this is a new playwrights festival, um, and it's promoting... 
Latino theater in town, as well as we will have a poetry tent. Uh, who are we? Tintero Projects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have a wow. And uh, the uh, intern poetry buskers will be there Saturday uh. afternoon. Arte Publico will be there Saturday yeah. day as well. And we'll have copies of Daniel's book to so you can buy the book during the day, then go to his reading I at think night. Your, your you book will be out there by then too, right? No, it will not. Oh, man. <laughs> not yet, uh, but soon. So, but yeah, I will be there if you want to come uh, say hi to me and Lupe. Um, I, on I, that weekend, I won't be there. I'll actually. You'll be there Saturday. I'll be there Saturday. I would have just come back from Chicago. No, Miami. Oh, what are you guys doing? In Chicago? I, I'm actually doing a teacher summit that's happening in oh. Miami Dade County. Already oh, right uh, yeah. for the independent school district out there. Um, oh, right shout on. out to the Poetry Foundation because they're sending me out there to Dude, do yeah. some teaching stuff. So you got to write about that. Yeah, I will. yeah, it'll be a good time. Wait, hold on. Before we do all that, how do people get a hold of you? Like, where can they find you uh, on social I'm media? I'm on Twitter at Danimal Pena. <laughs> Danimal Pena. <laughs> Danimal. I used to do that because I used to write a lot of really incendiary things. <laughs> like, like, uh, and yeah. so like any time anyone would have to get at me, they'd be like, you know, fuck you at Danimal Pena. I was like, they love that. Like, oh, it's so silly. Uh, but also just like, you know, dp at danielpena.me or just, uh, uh, I don't know, you can call my office phone. I think it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> just call. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm in my office. Do you, you have a web, do you have a website or anything? Uh, danielpena.me. Oh. Yeah, okay. just danielpena.me. That's good. So stop. Yeah. So folks, uh, you've been listening to Daniel Pena. Uh, I am Lupe Mendes. I'm Jasmine Mendes, and this is Inkwell, a poetry pod. Well, sorry, a podcast, poetry and writing uh, podcast. We got fiction here today. Literary oh, podcast. Yeah. Come on, yes, literary podcast uh, in collaboration with Imprint. And next time, we are hoping to have uh, Dr. Robin Davidson, who is the previous Houston Poet Laureate, mm-hmm. uh, who just finished editing uh, uh, her full-on uh, Houston Poet Laureate project, uh, which was uh, Houston's favorite poem. Yeah, that was uh, incredible. Anthology. There's so many good poems in that thing, man. Yeah, right. And the little like anecdotes that are attached to it yeah, too are like yeah. so, so touching, spot yeah. on, beautiful. Time, yeah. So yeah. we're gonna talk to Dr. Davidson about wow. that next uh, project and what that took and what was it like for her to be uh, the second poet laureate of the yeah. city of Houston. She's and, great. Uh, so then we go from there. Uh, in addition to uh, after that, we're hoping to have uh, Tony Diaz who is the founder of Nesta Palabra, who this year will celebrate 20 years wow. of doing- That guy's righteous. a machine, man. I know, right? <laughs> he's doing also like the nicest guy. Like he's, he, I've never seen him in a bad mood. No, I've, like he's like I, the nicest. He's like- He's always- Maybe like three times you know, <laughs> in 20 years. No, <laughs> I'll come and like something banal happens to me. But he's just like the really, he's just the nicest he guy. Yeah. He's awesome. So he's always down to earth. So folks, thanks for uh, listening in. Share this podcast with all your friends and family and any, even your enemies. And if you have siblings- Especially your enemies. Yes. If you have siblings, be nice to them, forgive them, share this podcast with them, listen to it together. Practice radical empathy. Radical empathy. Radical empathy. That's what we should have talked about. Yeah. Humanity. I'll have to do a part two with Daniel Pena on radical empathy. Our next episode is a part two with Daniel (laughs) (laughs) Pena. That's like deeper. So uh, you've been listening to Inkwell. Thank you guys for showing up, and we will talk to you soon. Signing off. Tune in next time. And I'm not going to wave this time because I know that nobody can see me. I'll wave. I'll wait. <laughs> Let's wave. Let's wave. wave. Three, two, one. Wave. wave. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Thanks, guys. All right. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Inkwell, a collaboration between Tintero Projects and Imprint in Houston, Texas, a city with a wellspring of literary activity. Inkwell is hosted by Jasmine and Lupe Mendez of Tintero Projects, produced by Kristen Flack, Rich Levy, and Krupa Parikh of Imprint, and recorded, engineered, and edited by Josh Walker with 150 Media House. 
Inkwell is made possible by a grant from the City of Houston through the Houston Arts Alliance and Imprint's other generous supporters. For more information, visit Imprint Houston or tinteroprojects.wordpress.com. For feedback on this and future episodes, email inkwell at imprinthouston.org. We also invite listeners near and far to attend our readings and workshops. Until next time, keep reading and keep writing.